Hi, and welcome to this very special episode of Forest for the Future. I know that I've been saying that a lot lately, but this one is truly different than all of the other ones. Because this one was recorded live, in person, in front of an audience, and with my interviews right in front of me. What a luxury for an online podcaster like myself. I haven't done any of those since the very first episode. This interview was recorded during the event Future Forest that was held at Space 10 in Copenhagen. Space 10 is a research and design lab fully funded by and dedicated to IKEA. They're on a mission to create a better everyday life for people and for the planet. In their latest exploration, they focused on how technology can support the forest of tomorrow. And beyond just releasing a report of their findings, they also invited some of the organizations who are pushing the boundaries for how we might use the forest smarter into a conversation. And that conversation I got to moderate. So in this episode, you will hear from Phil Guillory, who you might know already from World Forest ID. You will hear from Ulf Johansson, who leads up the IKEA Global Wood Supply and Forestry team, which is a team of more than 40 individuals worldwide leading IKEA's priorities for responsible forest management, strategic wood sourcing communication, and then we'll dive deep into the conversation. I'm inviting Phil Guillory on stage. Phil is the director of World Forest Ideas a tech-driven nonprofit that's undertaking the small task of mapping some of the most vulnerable forests in this world with the goal of combating climate change through science. So Phil, yeah, put a few you. more words to that. Thank you, Loa. Yes, one of the things is, is what we're talking about is looking into the future. And so about 100, 200 years ago, a lot of biologists went out across the world and collected samples of trees. And this was very helpful to be able to identify. So if you had a piece of furniture and someone asked, what is the species, what is the makeup of that? They could identify it, look at this library and compare the samples under a microscope and be able to identify it. Over the years, the science started to, in a sense, die because almost all of the species of wood had been collected and had these collections. And one of the things that it didn't do is it really was not very accurate at where that wood came from. So some things happened over the last 30 years, and it started in, in agriculture. One story that I think is relevant to Denmark, a lot of people in the UK like bacon. They wanted to buy British bacon. They didn't want to buy Danish bacon. So there, many of the retailers said, how do we distinguish between British bacon and Danish bacon or bacon from other areas? What they wanted to know is, can you identify that? Uh, but just a quick explanation of one of the things that all plants and animals, we absorb the elements from the environment we are in. Well, one thing that's really interesting about the elements is they're actually what we call isotopes of elements. And so this is an example of hydrogen. There's hydrogen two, which has one proton, one neutron, and hydrogen three, two neutrons and one proton. And these ratios, the ratio of hydrogen in your body, the water in your body has a ratio of almost all of its, this hydrogen, deuterium. A very, very small amount is hydrogen three. But what's really interesting is that ratio changes where you are by geography, geology and, and weather patterns. And what it allows you to do is it allows you to be able to, if you take a, piece of wood from 
this forest, you can measure those stable isotopes in that wood, and you can compare it to something such as a table that you think came from there. It works also with what we call forest risk commodities. So when this is being cleared for soybeans, cocoa, coffee, you can also measure those products to say where they came from. So what we're doing at World Forest ID is we're saying, let's promote this science so it can be used by the IKEAs of the world and others to be able to identify that products are coming from where they say they are. You can verify saying, yes, it actually did using science. So then the other thing we're doing is working on how can you use this technology? How do you make it better? So how do you combine it with remote sensing to saying, okay, we know deforestation is happening here. Can we link that with the information we're doing to get location uh, information? Can we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to actually get more granularity, to get more accurate? And can we use other techniques? There are things like trace element analysis. My hope is that you know most products, solid wood, and other products, you would be able to get down to something like 20 kilometers from where it was harvested. And we think when we build these databases, it will then help one enforcement and help also companies be able to know where their wood is coming from. My name is Ulf Johansson, and I have a fantastic job. I'm leading a team in IKEA called Wood Supply and Forestry. And there are three main focus areas I want to talk to you about today. The first one, we will continue our work to make responsible forest management the norm in the world and go beyond our own material needs to do that. Use our size and volumes, our partnerships to make it the norm wherever we are in the world. One is biodiversity. We know that the world is losing biodiversity at an alarming rate today. The other is people. There are 1.6 billion people in the world depending on forests. And they also have a right to create a, a fair and equal life for themselves and their families. And they are not always the people that has the strongest voice in the society either. And then we will also continue working with supporting global, transparent, democratic third-party certification system to verify that the wood has the origin it has. And so far, it is FSE who qualifies for those requirements as a certification body that I just mentioned. Then, of course, setting requirements is one thing. The other is to verify and meet the requirements. I have today in my team about 40 people with their boots on, as we speak now, out in the forest in the world, tracing the wood from our furniture factories back to the origin to make sure that we always meet, meet every day our requirements. And of course, that's a fantastic job that is done, but it's also quite tough job and it can never be done on every cubic meter. And that's where, of course, technology comes in now. And we are now exploring isotope analysis, DNA, blockchains, a lot of things. It's not only us who want to know the origin of the wood, it's also an expectation from the customers going forward where the wood in my product comes from. Transparency, in my view, is fundamental for a sustainable development, and there is way too little transparency in the forestry sector. It's also vice versa, I would say. The foresters, they also want to know where they would end up. What is the consumer's expectations and preferences and so on? So this is a big opportunity, and, and I can promise you that we are, we are not perfect in IKEA in this, but we will take steps in the coming six months that I hope you will see where we will increase our transparency and our communication about the wood we are using. Second one, halt deforestation. 
a lot of things we can do, but there is one thing we must do, and that is to stop deforestation. Stopping deforestation would immediately have a fantastic impact on both saving the biodiversity and stopping CO2 emissions. There, of course, we want to play a role as well. We are doing it by running projects around the world now, showing models how you can reforest or uh, restore degraded forest in a sustainable way. Also keeping all other land use aspects in mind, of course. The land has to cater for a lot of services, not only forests. Looking at an example here then, uh, this is a model from one of these projects we are running. And if you just see in front of you an area in South America that is deforested, on this area we will plant half of that area with native wood species. And those trees, when they grow, will of course remove carbon from the atmosphere and store it in trees. They will also attract mosses and lichens, insects, birds and mammals and so on, to actually create the old native forest that was there from the beginning. And by growing, they will also create a carbon stock. But the carbon removal will reach an equilibrium after some time where the removals and the emissions is the same. The other part of the forest then we will plant with industrial timber. But it's now when the important things come. You take the trees you harvest here and turn into long-lasting products. And this is of course important. We should not use wood to make short-lived product that emits to the atmosphere immediately. They need to be long-lasting and they need to be designed for recycling. And this together shows that over time, active and responsible forest management has the capacity to remove and store more carbon than those forests that are passively managed. Third thing, use wood in smarter ways. We will maximize the use of recycled wood in IKEA. In 2030, at least one third of all the wood we use will come from recycled wood. We will invest in innovations for wood-based applications that helps us phase out virgin fossil materials. And the third one, develop technological approaches which increases material efficiency, to be mindful about every tree that we harvest, to make sure that we make as much furniture as possible of every tree. And all these things together will, of course, help us to store carbon for a long, long time and help us to also reduce the pressure of the forest that needs to be protected. Okay, so now we're getting to, for me, the very interesting part of the evening where we actually get to have a conversation. So I'll uh, start out with you, Ulf, because when I was listening to your presentation, there was one thing that caught my attention when you were talking about storing carbon and how if we replant forest and reforest areas, and then you said, we of course have to do long lasting design. I'm thinking long-lasting design in IKEA, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not always thinking IKEA long-lasting design. I'm thinking stuff you buy when you move out of your home and then you throw it away the first time you move because you can't move them from A to B. So long-lasting design, is that, are you shifting a design model? Unsustainable consumption is of course one of the biggest challenges that, that the planet is facing. And that's something that we need to, of course, as a big home furnishing retailer must address. And it's, it is now one of our top priorities in uh, our guidelines for our designers and product developers to create furniture that has either a long lifetime themselves or both, that they are also possible to refurnish, to repair, because this is critical for us, of course. And then I don't think we uh, can stop 
consumers in the world, and maybe particularly in developing countries, stop them from consuming. So, of course, then we also need to make sure that our supply chains are decarbonized throughout production and that our products are possible to then recycle in the end. So when in the very, very end, when you have done everything else, uh, then when you reach end of life of the product, then the product should be recyclable so that it could still keep the carbon and so on in, in future products. Mm-hmm. So you told us in the very beginning of your presentation that you buy 1% of the global industrial wood used. How much of that is actually tracked or do you know where it's from or using digital tools in some way? We do use digital tools. Of course, that's one of the, let's say, phenomena that has popped up lately in the work we do to, in the safeguard systems we have to secure that the wood actually has the origin that we claim that it has. We are working with several levels of safeguarding. We, we, of course, like I mentioned before, our own specialists that verifies the information we get from our suppliers actually walking to the source. We use FSE as one third-party certification system. We also, in our working methods, hire our own third-party auditors to do checks as well. So there are a number of different, uh, let's say, levels of control to do this. And how much is that is then digitalized and using new technologies? For, for the moment, it's very little. We, we are in the starting phase here. Uh, and of course, then we use the digital tools to address where we really have challenges. I can give an example. That is rattan, which we use then basically from, uh, mainly from Southeast Asia. And I think there are, don't quote me on this, I think there are 500 species of rattan or something. Some are endangered, some are not. It's not very difficult with your eye to see who, what is what here. Even if we then have a list of which species we accept, we also need to then find technologies to make sure that that is actually also what we get. And here we have, for example, been working with DNA analysis now for many years, working together with Kew Gardens in London to help us with this. So that's one example that has been really helpful. And of course, only by, you know, making everybody aware that we are testing. Uh, Even that could also mentally, of course, help making sure that we only get the material that we ask for. Just to build on that, then when it comes to wood, of course, then we are working now, as I mentioned before, with isotope analysis, with DNA and so on. We are, we are testing now. And I'm, it's not only us, of course, the whole industry is now also parallel building this reference library because that is necessary to, to actually get a, a good result from it. Mm-hmm. What about the forest themselves? Are you using digital technologies, new technologies in the forest themselves? testing them? I don't know if a drone is a digital technology, but satellite imaging, of course, mm-hmm. is something we have been used, uh, using together with our partners both to monitor, let's say, the forestry situation in the countries where we are sourcing, but also in, in a more driving uh, general forestry agenda. Together with, for example, WWF, it's, we have been for, I think, the last 20 years now driving probably the biggest uh, forestry project in the world where we are for the moment running projects together with WWF in 14 different countries, addressing the challenges in those countries. One can, for example, be to create maps over high-value forests in uh, Romania and make them public for our consumers, for NGOs, for the industry, for the government to use. And for the non-foresters in the room, what makes one forest more high-value than another? Well, uh, I would say biodiversity is probably the single most important thing, but there can, of course, be a lot of other aspects as well. 
Mm -hmm. How much of this is actually new? Like, how much of this is different to five or ten years ago? Technology is moving fast here. What we talk about now, I think we, we used very little of that ten years ago. Mm -hmm. What about you, Phil? Your technology, do you see what you're doing as complementary to some of the things that Ulf is mentioning that they're doing, or will it replace some of the stuff that they're already doing? It's a little bit of both in the sense of, you know, what we're doing is verifying where the wood came from. It doesn't say anything about how the forest is managed or the path it takes to the end, but it's saying we know it came from here. For many companies, that's a very complicated and expensive journey to go from, you know, this chair all the way back to the forest. So it will be complementary more than replacing uh, many things that still need to happen. Mm -hmm. What is actually, because when you're talking about sending people out into the forest, gathering samples, putting them in a database, then gathering samples from a product and testing that, that sounds really awfully expensive. Building the reference databases is, is expensive, but we think, but relative to what countries spend on other things, we, you know, back of the envelope saying if we, we were able to collect the 200 most traded and vulnerable tree species in the world, we estimated that it's probably going to cost $50 million, which is a huge sum. But if you think of what governments invest into climate change research and other things, it's actually a very small sum. For the companies, you know, we don't expect them to fund the reference databases. We think governments should be funding that. But then it's, you know, the testing can be about around $600 for one test. But the point is, is you don't have to test everything in a supply chain. If people know that testing is possible, maybe test 10% of them, 5% of them, that will have an impact on making people realize that they might get caught and they need to be, you know, they need to make sure they know where that wood is coming from. Mm -hmm. How does it actually work? Let's say IKEA now wants to use your technology. Do they then point the forest that they want to sample from and you go and collect? Well, well it, it, it depends if what the first question is, you know, what would you like to verify? You'd like to verify it's from a certain country. So if you say, we think this is from Estonia, the first thing we do is say, well, we have the reference samples for these species in Estonia, so you can do the testing. And then it's just a case of doing the tests and being able to show and verify, confirm it came from Estonia or confirm it's not <coughs> consistent with Estonia. If there isn't those samples, then, you know, if people will fund it, then we will work with companies or we will work with governments and companies to say, let's build that reference data set. EU regulations, you have to state where it came from. So if they say it's from Estonia and it's not from Estonia, you've broken the law. Mm -hmm. That's some of the things we're doing. Very, very interesting and also very groundbreaking that we can actually use it for this kind of law enforcement. Is this something that you're looking into as well, Wolf, in your and trying to use these technologies to be ahead of law enforcement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in most cases, our requirements are higher than the law legislation in, in most of the countries where we're operating. Legal compliance, there would be kind of a minimum hygiene factor, of course, to meet that. But that is normally not enough to drive responsible forest management, and we need to be more ambitious. And of course, this is exactly what we need. I, I was looking at this chair before and I said to Phil, this is ash veneer, this comes from Slovenia. I said that because it normally does in Ikea, but, but of course, uh, the way normally we, we used to work before this technology came in was that we, with our people, 
and together with FEC, of course, then uh, and other ways of working, checked invoices, followed the, the track in, with documents and so on, went to the forest and looked at, it was not only, of course, a question of origin of the wood, it's also how working conditions are for people working in the forest and all those other aspects. But now we can take a ship of this surface layer and send it to, to fill and get the verification if that is matching with the reports that we have got from our partners or, or our own results. So, But we don't have ash from Slovenia, so we wouldn't be able to do that now. And that's why we, now I know, oh, ash from Slovenia, we've done oak in Slovenia. So, and we might have a, a little bit of ash, but that's, that's what we need to know. What do we need to collect? Because you can't do it yet. It's possible if you have those reference samples. Yeah. And of course, like very often with technology, there is a ramp up cost, yes, that we, someone needs to pay. But over time, of course, this will be a lot cheaper and much more precise also than having people traveling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we grow the net of samples. We can that we have basically to to. test almost all the volumes we're using in t- instead of doing sample tests here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we look at it as much like GPS technology. Governments had to put the satellites into, into space. Very, very expensive, but look what it can be done. So, Ulf, you're, you showed a lovely graph that said 2050, everything will be a-okay, because we have had, we will have so much CO2 absorption from reforestation. Is that enough? Will we reach that target in time? Are we on the path of doing that? Just talking about deforestation as an example, then, it is one of the biggest threats we have to the forests in the world. And of course, that delivers then a number of other threats, like climate change and so on. We are not in a good place in the world here. We need to stop deforestation. That is absolutely a must. And when we do that, then we have, if I'm not mistaken, approximately 2 billion hectares of deforested land in the world that needs to be used for something climate positive, like reforestation or forest restoration again. And that's why this, for companies like IKEA, not only to take responsibility for our own footprint, but going beyond, that is critical. To, to make the change, we need to, to be in a better place in 2050. So we are optimistic in IKEA that we can make a change. We have technology supporting us. We have the consumer supporting us as well. But there is a lot of work to do before we are comfortable with the development on a total scale for the forest in the world. If we talk about R&D, very often companies are weak on the R and big on the D. So there is a kind of need for re- ground research that maybe companies are not always the best to do. What we try to do in IKEA is to work together with universities, for example, to challenge universities with the challenges we have and try to then inspire scientists to, to work on fungi, algaes. You know, there is a lot of other biomaterials than wood that is super interesting to explore. Uh, but here we really need help. We can point out where we need help and what are the challenges, but but most probably we are not maybe as a company the best to do this real ground research. Mm-hmm. So is IKEA looking into making it more visible for consumers to be able to grasp the footprint and the processes of a product when buying it in the store because many are potentially disconnected from forests and don't know the path from forest to this chair I'm buying in in the store and also therefore perhaps not cherishes it as much because they don't know how long it actually took for that tree to grow. Is IKEA doing anything to make that visible for customers? Uh, We we are, but but we can definitely do a lot more. What is inspiring is that 
and I, I always say that at home, that you, you need to know that everybody doesn't live in Småland. Uh, our consumers, they might be fifth or sixth generation city people in Vancouver or, or uh, Thailand or somewhere. But even if you are a fifth generation city person, wood speaks to you about nature, warmth, a lot of very positive words that we get from our consumers when we ask them, what, what is your feelings around wood? And it, it's deeper than function and design, actually. It's something that is very, very deeply cultural. And that also means that there is a big need from consumers to, to know more about the impact of the product you are buying. Where I think recycled wood is uh, one change driver. That is at least what we get from our consumers. Now, 20 years back, particle board was maybe not a super nice word. But today, if we can say that this particle board is made out of recycled wood that releases the pressure of the forest, that keeps the carbon in the loop, all these things, then, if, of course, it doesn't replace the fact that we must do nice furniture with high quality and so on. But it changes the perception, and a new generation has a different perception than than maybe the previous had. Mm -hmm. You're just talking about recycled wood, and you've talked about how that's one of your three pillars that you want to go in the direction of. But you also mentioned FSC multiple times this evening during uh, your presentation and here, and there's no doubt that IKEA has had a massive effect in millions of hectares of forest moving from being traditionally managed intensively managed towards being responsibly managed and looked out for for future generations. And that's really good news for those forests now. But it's equally good news for me when you're saying, well, we want to pivot towards reusing fibers more. That's good news for the climate. That's good news for the carbon footprint of your products. Mm. But we might question, is that then good news for the forests in the longer term? Because there's no doubt that the fact that IKEA required responsibly managed forests and only wanted to source from there meant that those forests transitioned into being sustainable. It also ensured that they were maintained and not cut down. So how do you perceive the role of IKEA as you transition into more recycled use of timber in preserving the value of those forests? Is that IKEA's role? I think we have a big responsibility. And I think it's, again, a good question. If you take the deforestation problem in Brazil, for example, it's not very much driven by the need of timber. It's driven by the value in exploiting the land and turn it in from forest into more valuable agricultural land, for example. If we see that we have a, a growing population in the world, a, po a population that is moving still in many parts of the world from poverty into, let's say, healthy or well wealthy life, there will be a need for, of course, raw material somehow and, and to... Uh, worry that uh, recycling too much so that there will not be any value in the native forest. I, I don't see that problem, to be honest. I think there will be a need for both, but what there is definitely a need of, that is to protect the, the forest that needs to be protected. Mm -hmm. uh, all the high conservation value forest needs to be protected to, to serve all other services that the forest has to deliver. And that is where recycling can pay, play a very, very big role. So in other words, you're not seeing the need for IKEA to source new fibers. You're not seeing that decrease as you add on recycled fibers. You're actually saying that will remain a constant and you'll add mm. recycled fibers on top? If, if we project, of course, this is a forecast we talk about mm. now. If we talk about 20, 30 years ahead, we believe that 
if we are successful. For example, like we have decided now, at least 80% of the wood into our capoticables will be based on recycled wood. Our need of virgin wood will flatten out for the applications we have now. And those applications are the majority of the volume in IKEA. Then, of course, if we add on wood-based textiles and other things that will replace fossil materials, that could be an uh, additional need for wood. Very little in IKEA, I must say. For other industries, it could be more, maybe. But there is also a big opportunity, and that is, of course, also a technology question, to manage our forest both in a way that they are both responsibly managed, protecting biodiversity and so on, but also producing wood to cater for the needs and the smart use of it, like I mentioned. So is it possible to combine continued growth with preserving our forests? Can we make it in time? The clock is ticking. We see uh, how the climate is changing. We see the consequences already now. Our consumers are seeing the consequences of a changed climate. Our suppliers are seeing the consequences. Of course, now we are also in the middle of an energy crisis in the world, where, where of course, that puts pressure on forest as well, and on wood that makes, makes the challenge even bigger. But I see a big potential in, in technologies, how to do this in a better way, uh, and provide the world with what we need. Recycling is one thing. One thing that maybe needs to be explored more is also on certain parts of the land we have more intensive wood production. It's nothing strange to see a cornfield or a wheat field, but also in some areas produce wood in more intensive ways. I think approximately 3% of the forest land in the world are plantations, and they cater for 30% of all the industrial timber in the world. So in 10% of the forest land could deliver all the wood we need, and the other 90% could be used for carbon stock or biodiversity or something else. So to work out with technology and science, sustainable intensification, I think, is one area I believe, personally, that we need to explore much more than we have done today. Are you looking into different ways, instead of thinking growth, 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 are you looking into circular business models? Are you... Are you testing Absolutely, how we can and this is not maybe redefined. really the topic for tonight, but of course circularity is much wider than only, only recycled wood. And circularity, that is one of the top priorities we have in IKEA. That is critical to achieve what we want to achieve or need to achieve. Absolutely. And actually one of the areas where IKEA is pushing the FSC system to be much more open to, to enable circular business models. Yeah, I think we all need to push each other. I actually can't help but think of you, Phil, and the work that you're doing on the Solomon Islands in terms of using your technologies to actually help a community prove what is theirs and what is not theirs. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's an example that's an FSC-certified forest in the Solomon Islands, and they're having trouble selling their products because basically people are claiming that they're buying from them and not and selling it and passing it on. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons we went to collect there so that if someone claims it's coming from the Solomon Islands, then you could actually prove it and make sure that's, that's not happening. So, and, and that, you know, helps communities, helps indigenous people. And if we can get it to the point, another example I think is really exciting is we're working with uh, FSC certified concessions in Cameroon and Gabon. And those concessions, the concession, the people who have the concessions are working with the communities around the concession to do sustainable cocoa. And one of the things we're working on is can we then get 
samples of the cocoa and then test the chocolate to show it's actually deforestation free. It's from these communities. It's from around these FSC certified forests. So looking at more than just the forest management, but the communities around it and the land that's used around it as well. So actually looking at it from a different lens, not looking to see whether anybody cheated, but actually to prove that they're doing a good thing. Yeah, that is something is deforestation free. And can you do that for cocoa, you said? What other yeah, kind well, of things can you do that Well, that's one of the things we're testing. We're collecting that now. We have every indication because the stable isotope testing started in agriculture. So we have indications that you should be able to be able to test the chocolate and the signature, the chemical signature of that chocolate should match what's coming out of that community. And that way is it's a very nice way to verify this is actually deforestation-free chocolate. Mm -hmm. Do you see a future where we use technology to reconnect with nature, to revigorate, I guess, the value that nature in different perspective, marine nature, forest, the way that we connect, like what you said, six generations living in the city might not have ever gone to a real forest. Do you see a way where we can help people connect using technology? I don't see any other way than technology because I don't think the, the trend with urbanization will stop within short. We will have most of the population in the world living in, in or close to big cities. Uh, that, that's a fact. And uh, to then build on the, the needs to create this, let's say, understanding of the dependency between nature and forest and uh, consumers has to be supported by technology. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. Mean, yeah, to add to that, I think, is if you have transparency, if people know and understand where something's coming from and get a feel of that, see, see it on the ground, what's happening, what the community's working there, you know, then, then that gives them something tangible that they can see and likely have greater value for. Do you think people will bother? I think some people will bother. I think the, uh, a lot of younger people here are, I have two young daughters who care. So uh, I would hope, and I think the IKEAs of the world, they see the consumers asking those questions. So we need to be bothered. We need to do that. I think else we're never going to get to a sustainable Mm. Are you seeing that, Ulf? Are you seeing a pressure from your consumers? Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's no doubt from my perspective that uh, consumers bother. Of course, there is some nuances between countries, cultures, generations and so on. But in general, our consumers are very, very concerned about their impact or their consumption's impact on, on, uh, on the environment. Then it doesn't mean that they are prepared to to negotiate with function or quality or price or something else. In this year, we need to deliver a nice design, an affordable price and a sustainable uh, production. And uh, I think it's not so strange to realize that, especially now in a tough, tougher world where, where very many consumers' wallets are getting thinner. They need to, we need to deliver affordable sustainability. We've talked about how IKEA will start using wood in new areas. They will start using, I hope so, textiles made out of wood. We know that everyone is transitioning towards using more forest-based products. Is there a limit to how much we can just go in that direction, shift from fossil fuels to forest? Well, I think is I can start and hand it over to Ulf, but I think is, you know, the vast majority of deforestation is from agriculture. So if that's, if you can, you know, stop that, slow that down, 
that will leave a lot more land you know, to be able to do restoration forestry and keep it at forests. Because I think is, you know, what we're talking about is keeping forests as forests, but then harvesting from those. So, you know, really look at what's causing deforestation, really focus on that. It's one of the reasons we're looking at, yes, we started at timber, but we said we need to look at these forest risk commodities. We, you need to address those and know where they're coming from and show that those chocolate, cocoa, coffee, soy, palm oil is irresponsible and, you know, not forest friendly. Um, I don't think it's the Ikeas of the world that are driving that. And so I, I think that's sort of the first part of that answer. Is there a limit to how much you can grow and how much timber you can use? I, I don't think it's a question of how big Ikea can grow. It's, of course, a question about how big the total consumption can be. Of course, I mean, today, at this point in time, there is definitely a limit to what is a sustainable wood use. And that, I think, is why one of the reasons why we ended up with the direction I presented here. Increased volumes of recycled wood, increased efficiency in the wood we are using to really make sure that we don't use more virgin wood than absolutely necessary. Then, going forward, there is a potential in managing our forest in a professional and active way so that the forest can actually produce more wood. Like the plantations I mentioned as one example, if that is done in a professional and responsible way, there is a potential to produce more timber. And the two billion hectares of deforested land is, of course, also an opportunity that we must use going forward. Do you collaborate with externals like the Society for Ecological Restoration when you do restoration projects? You follow standards on that. It's nothing I recall, to be honest. Whether we do it in IKEA or not, I don't want to answer on. But I, I, I'm not familiar with that myself. But as, as a phenomena, to work with the local communities and local societies, of course, that is super important. There is no one model when it comes to responsible forest management that can be applied everywhere. So, of course, to t working with the local conditions and local communities to, or to provide... You know, what we mean with responsible forest management to, to be both environmentally sustainable and socially responsible, of course, is, is uh, necessary. So we've talked a lot about new technologies. We talked about using technologies <clears throat> to increase our efficiency, to increase our visibility. In many ways, we can say that's helped us ramp up the pace that we now have to slow down again. Is there things that we need to unlearn? Is there things where we have to go back to the old ways of doing things from your perspective? Things we have to learn from communities, from indigenous people. Well, yeah, having had the honor to work with indigenous people, I definitely agree that there's that possibility. I think part of it is the technology we're following is it provides a transparency, it provides those communities potentially access to markets, the ability to show that, you know, codes growing cocoa around an FSC-certified forest can be sustainable and can benefit communities. So I think it is how you use those technologies and, you know, not to necessarily become more intensive use of the forest, but to, to be able to tell some stories uh, and, and learn from these communities and using the technology to do that. Oof, is there anything IKEA needs to unlearn? And go back and do differently? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, we can do everything better than we do today. I, I really like the question because what, what one thing I mentioned before that I think was very obvious a couple of hundred years ago 
in Denmark and Sweden and it's still obvious for most people in the world. That is to be mindful with the things you have. Make sure that you treat your things so they have a long life because you have spent your little money on buying a table or a chair or something like that. So mindful of materials, on money, on products that we are maybe, at least in some parts of the world, of course, a little bit spoiled and allow ourselves to create more scrap or waste. It's only to look at our own dustbins every day when we have to, you know, take care of our garbage that we create in the society we live in. Of course, there is a lot that we need to build on of how we treated products and materials a couple of hundred years back and what, how people still do it in most parts of the world. And then find technologies to do that in a good way. I have one final question, because we're also running out of time to combat climate change and halt the biodiversity crisis. But we also had some really good conversation tonight. So, and I, like Ulf, is a positive person. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have stuck around this industry for 18 years. So, if I ask both of you to look three years ahead from now, where do you hope that we'll be and what will the world look like for our forests? Well, three years ahead. Three years ahead. I'm hoping that you will slowly start shifting that curve that will have an impact, I think, on these forest risk commodities and, you know, the real driver of deforestation, that people will start to be really concerned about what they eat and how it's linked to deforestation. And I think that's starting to happen. And hopefully then that will shift some of these agriculture practices um, that are uh, responsible for the clearing of most of the forests in the world. Mm -hmm. Ulf, where do you hope we'll be in three years? I hope we have stopped <laughs> deforestation. I hope that in the e I wow. e EU deforestation legislation is biting and that it's also inspiring other countries and companies in the world to, to follow that. The EU is taking a lead here. As I've said tonight, we believe a lot in market-based certification systems, for example, but it will not solve everything. Legislation also has a role to play here, for sure to also capture the, the, the worst phenomena or the worst behaviors. So that would be my, my wish. I truly hope that the visions of Phil and Ulf can become true and that we can preserve the value of a forest while decreasing pressure on them. There is no doubt that technology will play a key role here. But all of us also have to start thinking about which fibers we use, when and for what. If you found this episode interesting, if you want to know when a new episode releases, remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future. Forest for the Future.